This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitschow. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And we're going to talk about Star Wars! <laughs> Wait, didn't we already do this? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about Star Wars again. So Chris and I were editing the episode, finishing up things, and we started having a discussion about whether Star Wars was a good movie or not. Because we had said that it was fun, we had said that it works, but we never really came down and said, is this a good movie or not? And I was like, well, I mean, it's good at some things, but I don't I don't know if it's a good movie. And Chris was like, of course it's a good movie. What are you <laughs> talking about? Like, this, that's ridiculous. It's a, great, it's a great movie. It's not even just good. It's, it's, uh, and I was like, well, I mean, it's a good... Uh. So we started to have this long conversation about what good means. And so since we do have art and ethics built into our remit. We thought we would just talk about what makes a good movie and whether Star Wars is a good movie or not and then kind of widen it out to some kind of ethical broader considerations. Yeah. yeah, broader ethical considerations. So Chris, is Star Wars a good movie? Yes. Wow, that was a short episode. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you all next week. <laughs> Why Why is Star Wars a good movie and what does good mean? So that's – I mean we've talked about this in previous episodes, in previous seasons. Goodness in art is a pretty tricky concept and we're not going to flesh out every single thing we could talk about on that because that's you know like a PhD worth of graduate level seminars right there. Woo. And while that might be interesting to both of us, mm-hmm. uh, it's probably not – you know. Hundreds of hours of lectures are probably not what you're here for, dear listeners. Probably. Though if it is, you should tell us and, you know, maybe we'll do the art lectures podcast on the side or something. Yeah, and then we got to read Theodore Adorno. And that's not going to be fun. <laughs> so the reason I think Star Wars The Force Awakens is a good movie comes down to this. It had good characters who were interestingly drawn. It explored themes that were fitting to the context of Star Wars and did so effectively. It reflected on previous things within the Star Wars universe without simply rehashing them. And I know that's a slightly controversial statement, but I think it's true, and we can come back to that more. And it set up further movies in the series while still working itself as a self-contained unit. So it had good characters, it had a good plot, it was situated well within the existing stories of which it is a part, and it set up further stories in an interesting way. And it did all that while being fun and exciting, which is part, I would argue, of what makes a good Star Wars movie in particular. That's what I was particularly interested in, is that Chris thinks that Star Wars 7 was a good movie because it was good at being Star Wars, which is a really interesting sort of phenomenon. You can be good at being any arbitrary set of characteristics. So like we can debate whether the uh, third, fourth, or fifth of the Fast and the Furious movies were good at being Fast (laughs) and Furious, as I know people that have done. Holla at you, Jeff. There are ways that you can argue whatever, um, and you can find these arbitrary characteristics in almost anything, as an XKCD comic uh, pointed <laughs> out about mayonnaise and sandwiches and photographs. We'll link that for you. So there's an interesting context for what good means in terms of Star Wars in that 
Some people think that this was not a very good movie, but pretty much no one is arguing that this wasn't Star Wars or that it even that it wasn't good Star Wars. In fact, part of the argument that people have for why this was a bad movie is that it was too good at being Star Wars <laughs> in that it actually was almost the fourth movie. Yeah, and and with that, I think it's worth note that I think it is both a good movie and good Star Wars, not simply good as a Star Wars movie. Right. And I should also note that I am distinguishing between being a good movie and being a particular kind of high art or something. Right. I think those are overlapping categories, but I don't think they're identical categories. Right. I enjoyed Star Wars, so it was good at being enjoyable. It was a fun movie. I also enjoyed it as pretty good Star Wars, although I had some reservations that I would have liked to have seen changed if I ran the world. <laughs> but I definitely don't think it's good at being a philosophical treatise because it's definitely not, even though Episode Four kind of tried to be an, a philosophical treatise in some ways, um, which is interesting, and people have explored that. But... What I'm interested in is, for me, I thought that Star Wars was good at being enjoyable. It was good at being Star Wars-y. I wish that there would have been more expansion of the universe because Star Wars, pre the cutting off of the EU and turning it into Legends, had one of the largest, most exhaustive fictional universes that we know of. I mean, there are many large universes, um, and there are probably franchises that exist in Japan or China or other places that we're not familiar that also rival Star Wars in depth of universe. But to Chris and I, this is one of the largest universes we know of, and they really didn't do much with the fact that there's a giant universe out there. They stuck to single planet or a single biome planets, <laughs> which I don't know why every Star Wars planet is a single biome, but that's a thing. <laughs> they stuck to a limited number of them. They generally didn't expand on the types of biomes that we have come to expect from Star Wars, the forest planet, the desert planet. You know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of expansion where they could have gone. So for me, in terms of it being a good movie as a Star Wars movie – it was fine, but they could have done way more with it, in my opinion. Now, for all the reasons that we discussed in the first episode, I think that they did a good job of not screwing it up and <laughs> making a lot of people really comfortable with the idea that they're not going to ruin everything, which I think in some ways was more important than actually making a phenomenal Star Wars movie. Right. And that's one of the tricks here, right? Because if you come in with a movie that was actually really extraordinary but deeply unsettling to people, you might have lost the whole gambit. Right. And that, that goes to another kind of goodness, which is being able to assure fans, which is a weird kind of goodness to talk about. But it's a, it's a real thing, and it's a real phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about projects that take hundreds of millions of dollars of investment to make – that's a really important consideration because if you don't mm – -hmm. if it doesn't work, you're going to have a hard time making more. And so right. that kind of financial calculus, it's not merely mercenary. Now, don't get me wrong. It's mercenary. There's some definite mercenary calculation going on there. Disney is one of the most financially effective and also financially minded media companies out there. I mean, make no bones about it. They're in this for the profits. Mm -hmm. But – if Star Wars Episode Seven doesn't do spectacularly well, which of course it has, and it's one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and, and so on and so forth, but 
if it didn't do well, if it turned off the fans profoundly, if it left itself without somewhere to go, that would have been a problem. It would have been an artistic problem as well as a commercial problem. And so there's which another funny, kind of goodness there. Which is funny because you could have made a super artistic movie that was an artistic failure, even if on a standalone basis it yeah. would have been a good piece of art, which is also really interesting when you start to talk about goodness is that you can't really talk about episode seven on its own. I mean, its title is mostly episode seven at this point. I mean, it has a title, but, you know, there's no way to interpret this really outside of the context that it already exists in. So I don't know if that many people that haven't watched any Star Wars movie, one did come across my Facebook feed. <laughs> I'm watching them all for the first time. Like, what? <laughs> but... There's not that many people that don't have some context already for this, and Disney knows that. And so the goodness of this particular movie is kind of wrapped up in the goodness of all the rest of them. And as we noted in the previous episode, the badness of the first three. Yeah. So there's definitely levels of goodness that get really complex and really crazy. And so I guess one of the ways that we can interpret this is to say if you wrap all of those characteristics together, you say this part was good, this part was maybe less good, this part was really good. If you wrap all of those together and kind of average them, you sort of end up with an overall good, right? Because when we get to the end of a movie and we say, I feel happy and I was emotionally moved and I laughed – you know, that's kind of the the top billing you can give something, right? Like it made me <laughs> laugh and cry. Right. And this one did do both. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there is a sort of good that is the aggregate. And I think that's generally what we talk about when we think about, hey, was the movie good or not? Mm-hmm. People kind of do the calculus in their mind very quickly and say, yeah, it was pretty good on this, that, this, that, this, that. Yeah, it's just generally good. You know, a movie's average if it succeeds in some ways and not in others. Um, and sometimes you can have something that's so good on one side that it outweighs all the others. Like Guardians of the Galaxy is really great at being funny and charming. <laughs> And there's a lot of things that's not great. But it's so <laughs> yeah. good at being that one thing that it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to – I think it's interesting to analogize to the other J.J. Abrams revival property, Star Trek, because I think one of the things that we see there is that those movies were very entertaining and they were pretty well produced. They had interesting characters. In many ways, they shared a lot of the high-level – properties that the new star wars movie had in terms of general filmmaking qualities uh other than the massive plot holes but i said in general and many you know i mean there are some plot holes in star wars but (laughs) like they don't even compare to the plot holes in star trek yeah it's true but even if we leave some of those kinds of critiques aside i mean they hit a lot of high points they were generally enjoyable i think most people came out of those movies saying you know these were pretty good But one of the things that's interesting as you look at them is I think it is fair to say that they were less good as Star Trek movies, as representative of what Star Trek as a property is and has been, than The Force Awakens was as a Star Wars property. So, Well, that's interesting because now you have to talk about the Star Trek series versus the Star Trek movies because those are (laughs) different. That is also true, yeah. You know, if we're talking about just strictly Star Trek from – the earliest days, Leonard Nimoy, they're pretty awful. I don't think Leonard Nimoy ever would have ridden a motorcycle in Iowa with the Beastie Boys playing. Like, this is just not... It's just not the, a thing. It's just not a thing. If you talk about other Star Trek movies, they're definitely different than 
Star Trek shows. And then all of the individual Star Trek series are different. So when you start working your way through, well, is Star Trek, the movie, the new movies, as good as Voyager? You're like, well... Um, I mean, it, it, it's maybe better than Next Generation, but um, so, you know, so that's what good gets really complicated is that you have all of these considerations. But in general, I think what Chris and I mean when we say they aren't good as Star Trek movies is based off of the original Star Trek as the precedent that was then interpreted by all of the later Star Trek series and movies, whether or not those later series and movies interpret it as well as we would have hoped, <laughs> there's a baseline expectation that they're going to be trekking across the galaxy instead of warring across the galaxy because that's where <laughs> the titles get messy. Yeah. And uh, all of that, not so much to critique the new Star Trek movies, even as Star Trek movies, but just to note that that question of how something works in the context of its own broader milieu makes a big difference in how we evaluate the movie and the job it's performing. So I would say that in a lot of ways, the new Star Treks were enormously successful as reboots, even though they didn't necessarily fit the same kinds of philosophical ideas that Roddenberry initially put in the series and that even with all the other variations that carried through. Yeah. I mean, the ideas of a peaceable, moneyless future federation, et cetera, and everything that goes with that. And yeah, there's conflict and yeah, there's war. But nonetheless, there are some of those themes that are there in a way that the new Star Trek movies don't necessarily pick up. Whereas I think thematically, even perhaps in a way that some viewers have faulted, the new Star Wars movie hews very, very close thematically to the existing themes of star wars yeah almost too close so that's that's where that one comes down is they said we're gonna make a good star wars movie it's gonna look and smell and sound like star wars did, did your star wars have like sense smell-o-vision yeah <laughs> mine yeah, didn't and i think i'm okay with that yeah it's right up there by imax it smelled like dirt and sand lots of lots of sand yeah Mm. It's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. Yeah, that's what it feels like, and thankfully there wasn't feel-o-vision. There was just smell-o-vision. But what's interesting to me is that when you start talking about goodness as a multifaceted idea, you start to be able to say, well, I didn't like this aspect, or I didn't like this part, but it was still a good movie, Mm -hmm. which is something that – Christians aren't good at generally. I'm just going to go straight for that. At least the the evangelical subset of Christians. Yeah, I mean Anglicans and Roman Catholics are pretty good at it. Read Flannery O'Connor and you're like, I don't oh, I'm a, I'm concerned. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to like here, but everyone likes it. So anyway, so the evangelical subset, God's not dead too, coming soon to oh, a theater near you. Don't remind me. The idea that you can like some things and not like other things is a complex sort of response to art and one that mm-hmm. I've been puzzling over for a while, particularly in, in music and in lyrics and depicting things that, uh, you know, that we generally wouldn't agree with or that are unsettled by. So I was reading some lyrics of Sufjan Stevens again just for the heck of it. And I Want to Be Well off his Age of Odds record uh, is one of my favorites. It's seems a pretty uplifting sort of of tome. I want to be well. Um, I'm not effing around. I want to be well. Cool. So I go to Genius and I'm reading the lyrics and I'm reading people's comments in the lyrics and they have a vastly different interpretation Hmm. 
which is not inappropriate. I understand how they got here. That says the song is is primarily about suicide, which reading through it again, I can see it. I don't necessarily have to believe that interpretation. I can stick with my own if I feel like it. But it was interesting to think about, you know, this song that I've enjoyed for a long time not being something that I would actually generally enjoy if I knew what it was actually about. Yeah. Given that Sufjan Stevens has lots and lots of layers to his lyrics and purposely leaves people in the dark on things, et cetera, et cetera, it could be about lots of different things. Right. However, thinking about that and trying to parse through what does it mean to like something that you don't like? <laughs> right. What does it mean to enjoy something you disagree with or to not enjoy something you think is good or to have an emotional response that is different than your appreciation of the aesthetic of something, essentially. To be right. able to look at a song or a movie or a book and say, this is aesthetically brilliant and I didn't enjoy it and I don't think I could come to enjoy it even. Or to look at something and say, you know, that was really fun and I really enjoyed it, but I have some serious reservations about it as a piece of art or mm -hmm. the ethics it conveys or the worldview it embodies. Yeah. And and those are real things that happen in all of our experience of art. I mean, right. I can look at Game of Thrones and see, even in the few clips I've seen of it, that it is beautifully, wonderfully crafted in the sense of its aesthetics and its cinematography and its set design and all. I mean, just astoundingly well done. And yet, also recognize that it's well beyond what I want to subject myself to in terms of violence and sexuality. No, no, thank you. Yeah. And so there's a, you know, that's a fairly radical example. But we all experience that on a very small scales all the time. I mean, there's also the thing with Game of Thrones is that, you know, as a barely reconstructed pacifist, I'm <laughs> not into that much violence. But as a fantasy novel, if it were just a novel and I was reading it, I would be able to handle it. You know, the sexuality, maybe you flip a couple pages, right? right? But in general, the thing that makes me not really want to read Game of Thrones is that it's super bleak. Right. Like, it is super dark. And not dark in, like, a horror sort of sense, but just, like, this is grindingly difficult right. to and get through. Right, we're not through. sure that the good guys are actually going to live much less win. Right. And so as a piece of art, that has a, a value. It subverts a lot of expectations that fantasy has about how fantasy novels are written. In fantasy novels, the good guys usually win in the end. Takes a while. They may get beat up. But the idea of the fantasy novel is that there is an arc and it ends heroically, mm -hmm. you know, and there are people who have subverted it. But I think that no one has subverted it as dramatically and as effectively as George R. R. Martin. And so I think that's part of the reason that people read these because, you know, you can get your violence and your sex somewhere else. <laughs> but I think that part of the reason people read these is because there is this subversion of expectations and these really tightly drawn characters. Another thing that bad fantasy or even middling fantasy doesn't really have. Mm -hmm. They have more archetypes than fleshed out characters, which in some cases you really want that. Like that's what makes some things really great is that the the archetype pushes forward in ways you wouldn't expect, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that even though the the sex and the violence and the worldview are tough, and so we are not really 100% on board with that, it's hard for me to say that Game of Thrones is not good as a piece of writing because it it works within its genre in particular ways that almost everybody else is on board with saying, yeah, this is this is top shelf. Right. And you can see that on the inverse, there are many, many pieces of fiction written by or songs created by or so on. 
people with whom I roughly agree in terms of worldview that are much more on the same page with me regarding how you should think about sex or violence or whatever else that are not good pieces of art, that are not well-crafted, etc. I mean, to the point that Christian contemporary music or much of evangelically produced fiction is a running gag amongst me and some of my friends. It's it's a joke because it is so often so poorly done. Yeah, And I look at that and I say, all the agreement in the world with you about certain core propositions about reality doesn't change the fact that what you've produced here is bad. It's bad on all all fronts, except that you're, yes, I agree with you propositionally, but that's not the only thing there is to art. That is well, not and, the sole measure of art's yeah. goodness. And sometimes, and this is where it gets really complicated, is that you nominally agree with the social cues that have been put forward, yeah. but the actual propositions therein are not super great. Right. So like Ted Decker books, like these are in Christian bookstores. I've read several of them. Blink was a really great book. I enjoyed it quite a bit. But there are other Ted Decker novels where I'm like, uh, I don't really know if I'm on board with this all the way. <laughs> like, I, I yeah. you know, like we're probably still in the same boat, but maybe I'm on the other end. Like, right. yes. And so then you start to like have to ponder those differences and say, where is the acceptable variance in terms of what we expect to say yeah to? And where does it go so far from what you feel like the social contract is there that you're like, yeah, we actually probably aren't in the same <laughs> propositional boat. Like, you know, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to go straight for this. The uh, Left Behind books, not nominally social cued, <laughs> not, in the same, not in the same propositional boat. So, yeah. And I, I think that actually then you take it one step further and you say, if the art itself doesn't embody even the propositions it's attempting to embody, then you get into a yet further weirdness. So maybe I hypothetically agree with you about the shape of the world, but the kinds of books you write or the kinds of music you produce don't actually accord with what you're saying about the world. Then I'm looking at your art even more skeptically. And I would actually say that as far as it goes, that's one of the serious problems I have with much of what passes for quote unquote art among evangelical bookstores, etc. It's that they don't actually line up in terms of the kinds of art they're producing with what they claim to say about the world and so on. And so you end up with weird disconnects. Now, I would flip it around and say that outside the evangelical world, that's true as well, albeit in very, very different ways. Yeah, very different you, ways. You'll find people who are functional nihilists, if you trace down through their propositions, producing beautiful, stunning works of art that refute nihilism at every step of the way because of the kind of art they're making implicitly stands against the things that they explicitly would verbalize in their statement of their own worldview. We all have those kinds of contradictions within us to greater or lesser extents. Don't don't mis yeah. don't mistake us. Yeah, but I mean, this is it's it's like arguing for like what's good in Breaking Bad, which I have seen some of, or True Detective, which I haven't seen any of, so we're not going to discuss it. But <laughs> it's it's this tension there where there's goodness in the you know the the making, the, the right. cinematography, the subverting expectations, the art basis of it, and then there's some worldview expectations, and then there's change and diversion. And and there's all sorts of things going on. So it's uh, it, it's a complex thing. 
And sometimes we don't even want people to be completely consistent with their propositional worldview and then the story on top of it. Sometimes we want people to change over the course of the novel and you can, or the movie or the song or whatever. And you can argue that at a base level, the proposition is that there is change available. And then, you know, now we're getting meta, 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 meta. <laughs> but I, I think that the play between what we expect people to say, and what we expect people to do in films and in TV and in songs it's there. We expect some play. Right. And I think that takes you also to the recognition that what happens to characters in a book doesn't always directly correspond to what an author thinks. And of right. course, one of the problems that we can run into very quickly when we start thinking about questions of worldview in the context of art making is the idea that the voice within a given piece of art is the author's voice rather than the author intentionally projecting a different voice, maybe to make you think about things, maybe to right. prompt reflection on the questions there. Which is the whole Flannery O'Connor shtick, because right. I'm pretty sure that she doesn't speak in the same voices as <laughs> as she narrates. True She's that. Just, that's just not a thing. And especially when, you know, you read some of her commentary on her works in interviews or in letters where she specifically refutes the voices and says this is intended to point out important things about the state of the human soul, yeah. about the aspects of life that we deal with. And so that's why ultimately, again, as a barely reconstructed pacifist, <laughs> I can handle violence in the service of art because there's – it's not just – nihilistic violence or i hope it's not i wouldn't be watching it in that way but there's usually reasons for violence there's usually reasons for what's happening i mean yeah. even if you push it out to the extreme kill bill which is one long kill fest i mean it's the first word kill bill there's a reason underlying motivating principle that like you know you you shouldn't be killing someone's husband like that's <laughs> that's like the moral of the story but you know there's th that's a good thing to affirm like we're right. we're on board with affirming that like there's all these tensions going on and that's why good became sort of complicated when we tried to talk about star wars we're like well there's some in which of these senses is it good yeah yeah. And so I think that we eventually agreed that it is a good Star Wars movie. And my complaint is that it might be too good of a Star Wars movie. <laughs> and that hurt it from being a good or a better movie elsewise. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to hear what I would have done, which I think would have been a totally rad movie, you can like contact us via social media. <laughs> Stephen will tell you all his alternative universe ideas. Dude, dude it's going to be so great when they let me do episode 10. That's totally going to happen. I've got it all made out. Stephen's going to have a career change. I don't know. I'm, I'm in media. This is, this is not that far. Podcasting, far. journalism, hey, hey, movie hey, producing. Nope. nope. Totally nope. the hey, same. No, no. I'm not even trying to produce here. I'm just trying to write the thing. The music at the beginning of the episode was Star Wars course, by John Williams. More, more Star Wars by John Williams. Please don't use it without permission unless you're using it in fair use, as we are right now. Thanks to Andrew Fallows and Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Cha-ching! Every time we say dollar sign, I just hear cha-ching in my dollar head. Dollar sign, winning slowly. Yeah, I 
I can't avoid it. 10% of whatever anyone gives to us goes to keep up the Internet Archive because we need a library of some sort holding all the contents of the Internet for when things break and go wrong. Yep. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or recommend us in your podcast app directory so that others can find the show. You can find the show notes for this week's episode at winningslowly.org slash 4.04. And last but not least, we love hearing from our listeners. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Winning Slowly, on our Facebook page, or by sending an email to hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode that's not about Star Wars. Oh, but maybe not. (laughs) You know, that kind of like that queasy smell that you get when you're out in the desert and you're just like stuck in sand. I don't know if they've had this happen to you before, but nope. anyway, we're, de- <laughs> we're that's the greatest blooper reel of all time right there. Uh, the music was more Star Wars. <laughs> Duel of the Fates. I'll actually probably cut in music from the new Duel one. of the Fates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, from the new Star Wars, which isn't as good as Duel of the Fates. Oh. Uh, I don't know. There are a couple on there that I think are in the same ballpark. That's true. They're in the same ballpark, but they're losing. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. you can be in the same ballpark and still lose. In fact, you have it's, to be in the same ballpark to lose. It's true. <laughs>